Good morning, family. Let's just go to the Lord in prayer before we we get into His Word. Father, we are so grateful this morning that, that You speak to us through Your Word. That we do not come here just to, uh, to share together religious ideas and to ponder great philosophical or religious thought. But we have a sure word from You. We have Your Word. You speak and in it You reveal Yourself so that we might know You. So I pray that this morning You would teach us, You would instruct us, that You would draw us near, that we might see this morning Your glory, that we might see the wonder of the grace that You have given to us through our Lord Jesus. So guide the feeble lips of the speaker that the glory of Your Word might come forth. In Jesus' name we ask it. Amen. Last words. We're beginning a new series this morning. We're looking at uh, last words. I I think most people have a desire for when the time comes for the end of life, they would like for whatever words that, that that come out in the last days, hours, minutes of their life, that they would be something memorable, something encouraging, something profound, something significant. I've noticed over the last few weeks as I have read through a considerable number of last words of famous and well-known people, I've discovered that quite frankly most of them fall short of that. They're not memorable, they're not significant, they really don't mean much. good example is the Mexican revolutionary Pancho Villa. You may remember him if you're really old. <laughs> I don't think any of us would, but uh, at the end of his life, he is reported to have said this, don't let it end like this. Tell them I said something. <laughs> I'm sure that's how it will be at the end of my life. I will be, for once in my life, devoid of words worth anything. But from now till Easter, we are going to look at some of the most significant last words, or I would say the most significant last words ever spoken. For they are the words that come from the lips of the most important and significant person who has ever lived. Coming from the lips of Jesus Christ. We're we're going to look as the Scriptures record for us seven times that Jesus spoke from the cross. And we're going to take seven messages over the course of seven Sundays, ending on Easter Sunday with a break or two in the middle there somewhere, to examine each of these seven statements, often called the seven last words of Christ. Today we'll find the first of these in the Gospel of Luke and chapter 23. I'll encourage you to turn there and... um, Follow along as I read Luke chapter 23 and verse 33. We're going to be just ahead of Jesus' first words. And when they came to the place that is called the skull, there they crucified Him and the criminals, one on His right and one on His left. It was at this point 9 a.m. in the morning, and there are no words... I am convinced 
that could describe the horrors of the past 12 hours. We can go through and read in the Gospels and each of the Gospels tell us of some of that time. And you have to put them all together to kind of get a picture, but none of the description that is there, I'm sure, even begins to grasp just how horrific these past 12 hours have been leading up to this moment that we just read in verse 33. It was, you recall, that night before this was when Jesus and the disciples celebrated the Passover in the upper room. When they finished, they left the, the upper room, went through the streets of Jerusalem, exiting Jerusalem, down across the Kidron Valley and up the, the Mount of Olives to the Garden of Gethsemane. It was probably at that point around nine or so in the evening. They went there to rest and Jesus went to pray. Agonizing prayer while the disciples slept. It was around midnight that the soldiers came, led by Judas who had betrayed Jesus. They arrested Jesus, took Him back to Jerusalem. And that night, the rest of it was spent consumed by beatings and humiliations at the hands of the guards and going back and forth to trials with the Sanhedrin. At sunrise, Jesus was taken to Pontius Pilate, who then sent Him to Herod, who then sent Him back to Pontius Pilate. Then Pilate had Jesus scourged. Scourging was whips that had pieces of glass or pottery in the ends that would literally shred and take hunks out of the one who's being scourged. And they, the Romans were experts at doing this just to the point where the person was on the very threshold of death and then stopping. Then there were more beatings. And every cruel and every profane mocking imaginable. And then Pilate condemned Jesus to death. By the time that Jesus arrived at the execution site called Golgotha or the place of the skull or the hill of the skull, He likely appeared already more dead than alive. He was a shell of a man, bloody, His face distorted and beaten beyond recognition. Skin ripped and torn and hanging. Then nails were driven, fixing Jesus to the cross. The cross was raised up, dropped into his into place. And then speaking out of unimaginable pain, Jesus' lips begin to move. And Luke records for us his words here in verse 34. And Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. The soldiers were so moved by His words, it says they cast lots to divide His garments. <laughs> Seriously, aren't those amazing words from Jesus? Especially in the context of all that has just transpired and what lay ahead likely they would not be the first words that would have come out of our mouth had we been in Jesus' place. I want to note four thoughts 
this morning. Four key ideas that I see in this short little sentence. The first thing I want us to note this morning is that Jesus is praying. The Word never shows up in this little sentence, but it is obviously Jesus talking to the Father in a prayer. As a matter of fact, three of these seven sayings that we'll look at over the next weeks, three of them are prayers to the Father. And several things to note in this prayer of Jesus and in and in Jesus' life regarding prayer, I can't help but noticing that prayer to Jesus is essential. Like breathing is for us to live, so prayer was essential in Jesus' life and His ministry. It was Jesus' habit to go off alone to pray. Jesus would often rise early in the morning to have time focused and alone to pray. On occasions, he, some, he prayed all night long. As we noted just a few minutes ago, that night before His crucifixion in the Garden of Gethsemane, Jesus prayed for agonizing hours. Jesus began His public ministry the day that He went to the Jordan River, you may recall, some three years before this. He went down to the Jordan River where John the Baptizer was baptizing and the Scripture says, now when all the people were baptized and when Jesus also had been baptized and was praying, He began His public ministry with prayer. After He prayed or as He was praying, the heavens were opened. By the way, the Holy Spirit descended upon Him in bodily form like a dove and a voice came from heaven saying, this is My Son. In Him I am well pleased. Jesus began this public ministry with prayer and now He ends His public ministry in prayer. Prayer was so important to Jesus and surely it ought to also be so important to us. It was essential to His life and ministry. Is it essential in your life? Jesus set the pattern for us. Second thing I think of when I think of Jesus in prayer is I realize that Jesus taught us about prayer and He set an example for us about faithful prayer. Jesus taught us how to pray. He, he taught the disciples when they, they had watched Jesus praying for so long and finally they said, Jesus, teach us how to pray like You. And that's where He taught what we call the Lord's Prayer. It was really a model prayer, not designed to be repeated by rote, but to learn how do you pray? What does prayer look like? He taught us how to pray and He gave a good example, as I've just mentioned, of prayer, faithful prayer, fervent prayer, consistent prayer. Jesus now even prays while He's being crucified. As I was reading that this week, I realized that it erases any and every excuse that you and I can ever put up for why we don't pray. I mean, we come up with all kinds of excuses, don't we? I'm just too busy. I slept in late. I'm too tired. You know, we've got our whole list. I don't know what to say. None of them can top. I'm being crucified. 
Jesus was being crucified and he prayed. And his prayer was not, oh Lord, help me, help me, help me get out of this. Please, God, let me get out of this now. He's praying here for others. I was a sophomore in high school when I met Mama B. Mama B was uh, an older lady at my church. She doesn't seem as old now in my mind as she did at the time. (laughs) But she was 90. Mama B was mostly blind. She was confined to a wheelchair. When I met Mama B as a sophomore in high school, she said, Keith, I want to tell you something. I told God years ago, I said, you can have my body, but as long as I'm alive, would you let me have my mind so I can pray? She said, I committed to the Lord that I would be a prayer warrior. And she told me as a high school student, she said, I'm going to pray for you. She did. Through high school, through college, I went away to college Every time I would come home, every time I would ever meet Mama B, she'd say, How you doing, Keith? How's this, 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 and this going? I've been praying for those. Is there anything else I need to be praying for? I finished college, started seminary. Every time I'd see Mama B, she'd go down the list. How's this? How's this? How's this? How's this? What can I be praying for now? Finished seminary. We moved up here. Started ministry here at the chapel. A couple of years later, Mama B died at 102 years old in possession of her faculties till the end and a faithful prayer to the end. I can honestly say that I'm here today because of Mama B. We need more Mama B's, more faithful prayers. Jesus set an example for us. Even while being nailed to a cross, He prayed faithful prayer something else as I looked at this prayer I realized that this is also predicted prayer this prayer is a fulfillment of prophecy most of you likely know that Isaiah chapter 53 is a is a prophecy by Isaiah looking toward the coming Messiah the promised Messiah and he predicts the sufferings of Messiah in great detail describing this very day Hundreds, centuries of years before Jesus came. I never noticed this. You probably, like me, maybe never noticed this before till I was reading again this week. Isaiah chapter 53, verse 12, it says, He poured out His soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors. Yet He bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. Isaiah's prophecy, as I say, speaking of this moment on the cross, Jesus is numbered with the transgressors. He's been hung, as we just read a moment ago, on the cross between two criminals. Right in the midst of them, He's counted with the criminals. And yet, while He's there, He is making intercession for the transgressors who are at that very moment doing great evil and crucifying and mocking and tormenting the Lord of glory. Isn't that amazing? Another, one more thing I notice about this prayer, and that is that it is a persistent prayer. You won't see this in most of our English translations, but it starts off with, and Jesus said, for you English lovers, you folks who love grammar, 
This is in the imperfect tense in the Greek. Not in the past tense as the English translation is. Except the New American Standard. The New American Standard actually gets it right. Here's how it reads. Jesus was saying. See, here's the difference. What it means is, instead of Jesus said, it's Jesus was saying. He said it here, and 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 He said it here. When I realized that, I realized that Jesus says it probably as they're scourging Him, as He's walking through the streets and people are jeering and hitting at Him and throwing things and spitting and kicking and when He stumbles and falls and He gets kicked and drugged by the guards and as He stumbles carrying the cross piece and they pass that off to to Simon because Jesus is too weak and he, as He stumbles to the cross and they slam Him to the ground and as they begin to nail the nails with everything He's going, Lord, Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. Every insult, every pain, Father, forgive them. Verbally, non-verbally, it was the continual prayer of Jesus. Arthur Pink, who wrote a wonderful book on this, on the seven last words of Christ, he gives a marvelous application of this truth. I'll read it for you. He says, In praying for His enemies, not only did Christ set before us a perfect example of how we should treat those who wrong and hate us, but He also taught us never to regard anyone as beyond the reach of prayer. If Christ prayed for His murderers, then surely we have encouragement to pray now for the very chief of sinners. Christian reader, Never lose hope. Does it seem a waste of time for you to continue to pray for that man or for that woman or for that wayward child of yours? Does it look as though they have gotten beyond the reach of divine mercy? Remember the cross. Never give up. Keep praying. Christ prayed for His enemies. What a rich application. The second big idea I want us to note here, moving on from prayer, is that as Jesus prays, He begins with Father. I want us to think for a moment about Jesus' relation with the Father. Jesus' prime concern was always His Father and doing the Father's will. Even as a young boy, when the Scripture records the very first words that we know of Jesus, it was when Jesus was probably around uh, 12 years old when they went to Jerusalem to celebrate the Passover. You may remember the story. It's a big gathering. You go there with all your extended family and they were there and, and everybody packed up and they headed back home up to Galilee and they, they got a day down the road and everybody thinks that Jesus is with somebody else. <laughs> And a day later they realize, uh-oh, he's not here. Mom and dad have to go back. They go back and they look all over for Jesus and they find him in the temple with the, with the religious leaders and the scholars and there he is debating and, and asking questions and having discussion about great theological things. 
You remember what Jesus said when they found him? He said, did you not know that I must be in my father's house? Jesus' first recorded words are about his father. Chief concern for Jesus is always being careful to do his father's will. And again, that night before in the Garden of Gethsemane, as Jesus dreaded the coming horrors, knowing what lay ahead of Him, even then in His prayer, He was resolute to follow the Father's will. He said, not My will, but Your will be done. Now, in the midst of this awful trial, pain, Jesus still trusts the loving Father. He trusts the Father's will and He is still the obedient Son. He continues on the Father's mission and He continues in close communion saying, Father, Father. It's easy to dismiss this. Of course that's how Jesus acts. I mean, He's God in the flesh. He's perfect. He's so different than you and me. Of course Jesus is strong in faith and strong in trust, relying peacefully in the Father. Of course Jesus does that. Except that I don't think it was so easy for Jesus as we like to think. You know, the book of Hebrews says, Hebrews chapter 4, it says that Jesus, speaking of Jesus, who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. You see, when you and I struggle sometimes at at trusting, is God really good? Is God really have... Is He really faithful and loving and kind and good? Jesus, I think, understands what what it feels like. He wrestled. He was tempted in those ways. Indeed, that night in the garden before... This day, the struggle was so real and so agonizing, the Scripture says that His sweat became like great drops of blood falling to the ground as He prayed. So whenever disaster or tragedy crosses your path, it's inevitably it will. Whenever we lose a loved one, or a day comes when we receive a diagnosis of some dreaded disease, or some calamity happens in our life savings or our life's work or our home is wiped out or when someone hurts hurts us deeply or when evil people seem to be winning. When it is easy to question whether God is loving or God is good, when it is difficult to trust His loving purpose, we can look here to Jesus who in the greatest trial anyone ever has faced, Jesus says, Father. He demonstrates before us the faithful trust that we need. He's walked in our sandals. He knows how we feel. Someone once said, when life knocks us to our knees, we're in a perfect position to pray. (laughs) In the catastrophes of life, it is only in relation with our Father and in communion with Him that we will find the strength and stability we need.
to stand like Jesus. The third thing that I notice in this short little phrase, Jesus is praying and He prays, Father, and He says, Father, forgive. The purpose of His prayer is forgiveness. Not forgiveness for Him, but forgiveness for them. A quick flashback to a few years before. Three years or so before this, it was a beautiful day. The sun was bright, the sky was blue, the fields were green. Jesus was there on a hillside with a few thousand of His closest friends. And He begins to lay out before them the teachings about how God wants us to live. The sermon we often call the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus in that Sermon on the Mount says these words from Luke chapter 6, But I say to you who hear, love your enemies, do good to those who hate you, bless those who curse you, pray for those who abuse you. Those are easy words to say when the sun is shining and everything is pleasant. But that is not this day. This day is a stark reality. The sun, the hot, this morning sun is hot and it exposes before us the greatest act of injustice ever committed. As the Son of God is nailed to a a wooden cross, He hangs there naked, bleeding, disfigured, and dying. The crowd is filled with people who sneer and who scorn and who mock Him. What does Jesus say now on this day? Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. C.S. Lewis once said, Everyone says forgiveness is a lovely idea until they have something to forgive. For us in our Natural humanity, that's exactly the case, isn't it? If there is, if there has been any sin that is ever unforgivable, then certainly these crimes this day perpetrated on Jesus, the God-man, certainly these were those crimes, those sins. And yet Jesus prays for their forgiveness. This is amazing grace. Stunning grace. And yet, it is the very reason why Jesus came. To provide forgiveness for sins that seem unforgivable. Before His birth, before Jesus was born, the angel, you recall, came to Joseph. Joseph who was engaged to Mary, who has discovered that Mary is pregnant and he's about to end the engagement and because he knows that they have not had sexual relations, but somehow something has gone horribly wrong and she's been unfaithful. He's about to divorce her. Remember what happens? God sends an angel. The angel comes to Joseph and says, Joseph, don't be afraid to take Mary as your wife for what is in her is of the Holy Spirit. And he goes on to say this. He says, she will bear a son and you will call his name Jesus for He will save His people from their sins. Jesus, Yeshua, Yahweh saves. 
It was why Jesus came. As the prophet Isaiah wrote, Jesus came to provide the way for our sins to be forgiven. Isaiah wrote, He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace, that is with God, was upon Him. And by His wounds we are healed. Jesus came to make a way for forgiveness of sins. When Jesus prayed for forgiveness for them, it was not just a nice gesture. It was not some theoretical idea or just some nice little platitude. Father, forgive them. Jesus knew very well what that prayer would mean. Because in the, in, in the hours that followed, Jesus was going to bear on Himself the sin, these very sins He would take upon Himself. What Jesus was asking the Father is take these sins they deserve and put them upon Me. Charge them to My account. Add them to the debt that I am about to pay. Isn't that amazing? The people who are hurling abuses at you, who are sneering at you, who are tormenting you, who have beaten you, who have tortured you, who are nailing nails through your appendages. Father, forgive them. In this act of forgiveness, Jesus has forever set the example of forgiveness for us to follow. He has forever set the standard of what forgiveness is and what it looks like. He has also forever given the motivation for you and me in our dealings with other people of why we should forgive. We should extend the same grace and the same forgiveness to others that Jesus has given to us. As Colossians says, therefore as God's chosen people, holy and dearly loved, clothe yourselves with compassion, with kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. Bear with one another, with each other, and forgive one another whatever grievances you may have against one another. Here it is. Forgive as the Lord forgave you. The fourth big idea I see in this passage is compassion. He says, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. With a grace and mercy that only comes from God, Jesus looks at them with compassion. And He voices a prayer for their forgiveness and says, why? They, they really don't understand. He has compassion on them. By the way, who are the them here? Who are the they? Our text doesn't tell us. Is it his accusers or his tormentors or his executioners? Everyone who has a part in sending him in his sufferings and sending him to the cross? I, I think it is all of the above. He explains his compassion. They are ignorant. They are blind. Not one of them truly understands the depth of the evil that they are doing, nor to whom they are doing it. But ignorance is no excuse. Even today, it's one of those principles of law. Ignorance is no excuse of the law. And ignorance is here is no excuse. They are guilty. They have no idea of how guilty, how desperate the plight of their guilt, and yet Jesus prays for their forgiveness. 
Jesus had compassion. But it raises an interesting question here that I, I feel compelled to address this morning. Let me ask you a question. When Jesus, the Son of God, prays, does God answer His prayer? It's not a trick question. I see everybody, do I raise my hand and say yes? Do I nod? Do I... I'm just going to sit here. Hope He doesn't see me. And <laughs> I'd say the answer is, yeah, when Jesus prays, God answers. So if Jesus prays for them and they, whoever they are, and says, Father, forgive them, does God answer that prayer? And so are these folks now saved? That's a perplexing question. Because I don't think so. But if Jesus prayed it, wouldn't God answer that? I thought, how do I answer this? I'm going to take us to another passage of Scripture which doesn't really deal... This passage doesn't answer that. But I'll take us to another passage which raises a similar question on this subject of being saved. The one verse of Scripture most of you probably know if you know any verse, which would be John 3.16. There we go. Let's go. John 3.16, For God so loved the world that He gave His only Son that whoever believes in Him should not perish but have eternal life. Next verse. Verse 17, For God did not send His Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through Him. Why did Jesus come into the world? To save the world. So is the world saved? How did Jesus save the world? By dying on the cross. Jesus has died on the cross, so is everybody saved? No. But isn't that why Jesus died and didn't He die? Yes. How do we know everybody isn't saved? Because the next verse. Next verse says this, Whoever believes in Him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already, because he has not believed in the name of the, one, of the only Son of God. You see, Jesus paid the price so that forgiveness is available to anyone and everyone. Anyone, everyone can be saved. And anyone who believes on the name of Jesus Christ, anyone who trusts in Him, is saved. But those who do not believe on Him are not. May I say the, that is very similar to where we are over here with Jesus as Jesus prays, forgive them. Because in the next hours, Jesus pays the cost for their forgiveness. And forgiveness is now available to them even as our verse here says in John 3 to anyone and everyone who will trust in Jesus. So it raises a question. Was Jesus' prayer answered? Did any of these scoffers, mockers, executioners, tormentors, do any of them find forgiveness in Jesus? Some might say, oh, there was the... There was the uh, centurion <laughs> who says later here in Luke 23, who says, surely this man was innocent. And if you go over to Matthew and over to Mark, you'll read there that the, the same centurion says, surely this man was the Son of God. 
And church tradition says that this man became a believer in Christ. But may I say that's tradition. It's not Scripture. Do we know if any one of these tormentors actually became a believer? Short answer would be we'll find out in heaven. But let me give you another answer because I think the Scripture gives us an answer. We find it over in the book of Acts. Acts chapter 2. Acts chapter 2, you'll recall, is Pentecost. Fifty days after the resurrection of Christ, fifty days after the Feast of first fruits, we have uh, those apostles gathered, the disciples gathered, the Holy Spirit comes upon them. We call a great crowd gathers trying to find out what's going on. And, and Peter stands up and preaches and a, a marvelous message. We won't go through it, but in Acts chapter 2, what he says essentially is this. The promised one, the Messiah, came. and You killed Him. They say, what must we do? And he says, repent. He baptized every one of you. And they were. They believed in Jesus. And it says 3,000 people trusted in Jesus that day. You go over to chapter 3, and I encourage you, to, you might want to turn there if you got your Bible open. Because chapter 3, it's a few days later, maybe as much as a week later, Peter preaches another sermon. And the words of verse 16 in chapter 3, you might find very interesting. I never made the connection until this week as I was reading. And now, brothers, I know you acted in ignorance as did also your leaders, your rulers. Huh. Does that sound like what Jesus said? They do not know what they do. goes on. But what God foretold by the mouth of the prophets, He says, he, that His Christ would suffer, He thus fulfilled. Repent therefore and turn back that your sins may be blotted out. The results of that sermon you find a few verses later. Chapter 4, verse 4. Here it is. But many of those who heard the Word believed, and the number of men came to about 5,000, plus women, plus children. You know what you have in the course of a few days, maybe a week, is 3,000 plus 5,000 plus more, well, over 10,000 of those who Peter says in chapter 2, you killed him. You had a part in sending him to the cross. Over 10,000 of them in just these two sermons hear and believe in Jesus and find the forgiveness that is offered to all who believe in Christ. Now maybe Peter is an amazing preacher. But I have a sneaking suspicion that this really isn't so much due to Peter's preaching as it is to Jesus praying. Don't you think? Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they do. What are we to do with these truths? I've given several applications already, just two as I close. First, understand that our sins have made every one of us as guilty as those who drew, drove the nails into Jesus' hands and feet. Jesus came to bear the sin of the world. And the sins that nailed Him to the cross were not just theirs, they were our sins. 
I think very much as Jesus prayed, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. He was not only praying for those who accused Him falsely and those who beat Him and those who crucified Him. I think He was praying for us. If you have never put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ and come to know the forgiveness and the salvation that He offers to you, He's inviting you and calling you today. Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. Secondly, to all of you who this morning already are believers in Jesus Christ, may these words move us. May they move us to appreciate in ways we never have before the depth of the grace and the mercy and the forgiveness that have come to us in Jesus. May it move us to worship. May it move us to never Never stop praying for those who don't know Christ, even as Jesus was faithful in prayer. And may it move us to be busy in sharing the good news of forgiveness in Christ with those who don't know Him. Let's pray. Father, this is amazing stuff. It's moving. We are overwhelmed as we understand even just a glimpse, a little bit of of Your amazing grace, of Your great love that You poured out on us through Jesus on the cross. Thank You for for that great grace because without it we are doomed. Lord, may we never be the same. As we understand these things, may it transform us that we might love You more dearly, live for You more fully. that we might fill our hearts with joy and fill our lips with praise and move us to share this good news for there are so, so many who need to hear. This we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.